Welcome everyone to Fully Booked. My name is Adam. My name is Frank. And we're Fully Booked. What's up, Frank? Not much. What's up, Adam? How's everything going? I haven't called you Adam in a very long time, so that felt weird. I know. It's okay. (laughs) So yeah, AJ is, is the name that I used when I was a child. And for the first half of college, no, we knew each other in the first half of college. So anytime you say AJ, I'm like, oh, that's weird. I don't remember that name. (laughs) (laughs) It's a long time because even I think my parents have mostly dressed. They still say AJ, but they've they've they interchange it. Uh, But I hear it and I get very confused. So it is uh, it is a Memorial Day weekend over here. I've been cleaning the house and that I keep finding comic books that I have stashed all over the house. Frank, I have found enough comic books to fill a long box that I didn't know I had just stashed randomly all over the house. How many of you read of them? Uh, most of them. But whenever I finish them, instead of sticking them in a bag and board and throwing them in a long box, I stick them on top of a bookshelf and then forget that they're there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I immediately do it the second the comic is finished. I get the long board, I get the, the bag to put it in, and I file it away immediately. And pretty much my little futon couch that's to the left of me uh, where I'm recording is where I keep the comics that I haven't read yet. So that's how I kind of keep things distinguished from each other. So I know what's what. My books go on the right side of the room and the comics go on the, the left side of the room. So I have a distinction between where everything is. That's such a good system because I literally found um, like 150 comic books today that I had forgotten about. <laughs> Read how long ago is the question? Oh, I was finding stuff from 2021. Oh, wow. So you've had some stuff uh, there for a while. Yeah. Well, and I found like I found stuff stashed like in a bookshelf down here next to my desk that I had I had stuck a box in front of. So they were behind that. They were on like three different bookshelves upstairs, but like behind books. I was like, I really need to stop doing this. <laughs> You're going to have a documentary done of you, the comic book hoarder. He doesn't know where his stuff is. <laughs> exactly. Well, I was proud of myself because most of them I had read and I was like, oh, cool. So I didn't like I wasn't creating a stack of things that I needed to read. But I also have started to realize that I go to reread something or I'm like, oh, this is a great book to somebody. I'll I'll, I'll go home and grab it and then give it to you tomorrow. And then I can't find it. I have no idea where it is. So see, like with rereading stuff, I have haven't done that many a time. I've done it once, which is my favorite nonfiction book. It's called The Whale Hunt in the Desert. Mm. And it's about a casino host. And uh, his name is Steve Sear. I actually watched a video yesterday, a recent interview he did. I, I, I just like hearing whatever that guy does because he's very intriguing in terms of his life and what he's done. That is the only book based on him, not a biography he wrote, but uh, an autobiography. So somebody wrote it about him. Like they've come out over the years, like with different editions. Granted, for the most part, it's the same book, but maybe there's like a, in this, in the latest edition I had that I read last year, is it a foreword? When the person that was it was about had wrote his piece in it, like he wrote like I don't know six pages. Right, it's your introduction to the book. Yeah, uh, but but it's not an introduction. Yep, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I I absolutely love that book. And any new editions, if any new content comes out, I will always rebuy it again and and reread it. So that's the only book I've ever actually that I could think of that I've reread. When it comes to comics, I actually get annoyed if I start to read something that I've read before. That happened to me recently. Like I remember when I told you I bought a duplicate of the comic I had and I started reading it. I said, <laughs> yeah. why does this seem so familiar? And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, it's because you read it before. I get annoyed by that too, but only when I expect it to be something new. Uh, yeah, because then it, because then you have the game of like, did I read this? 
Let me read a little bit more. Then you're like flipping to the back of the book. Did <laughs> like I flipped to the end. Does this look familiar? I can't remember. That feels like a waste of time. But like I'll, if I'm purposely sitting down, like I know I've read this before and now I'm going to reread it. I'm fine with that. That's what happened to me. It was flipping through the pages. I'm like, I feel like I've read this before. Then I flipped to the end. I said, yeah, I read this before. And you feel like you wasted your time. So it's a very uh, disheartening feeling. But luckily, I, I got that all sorted out on my end. But yeah. One of the things I wanted to talk about before we get into the show today, which we're going to be reviewing the first portion of Charles Bukowski's Ham on Rye. And before we get into that, and I'll let AJ lead us along that path. This is his book club pick. I have watched today. So I started a free trial, which I know Amazon gives free trials like they're going out of style. It seems like every two months or something, I could redo a free trial <laughs> through Amazon. And I only did it again because I wanted to start a, a, a seven-day, I think it is, free trial of HBO Max. The only reason why is because- I'm oh, sorry. I think you mean Max. Oh, that's right. It's Max. <laughs> My sister told me- Newfangled Max app. <laughs> My sister told me that yesterday. She's, they changed the name just to Max now. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, In case you didn't get the 47 emails about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I only wanted to watch one thing. So one of the shows I, I really like that I don't get with my cable subscription anymore because they want you to pay extra, I believe for the travel channel potentially, and I'm not going to pay extra for it is um, ghost adventures. I love paranormal related stuff. And I know there's a Hollywood element to the ghost adventure show. So I take it for what it's worth. I look at it as entertainment, but I like to pretend what I'm watching. Hopefully some of it is real. I wanted to see the episode on the Titanic museum located in Branson, Missouri, because I actually been planning to go to Branson, Missouri in at the end of December. I've been really wanting to to go there. And anything related to Titanic, I jump right on board with that. I've done the Titanic exhibit at the Luxor Hotel, which is located in Las Vegas. Love that. And so I wanted to see the paranormal investigation of it. So that was one thing I was wanting to watch. So I watched that today. And then I watched another ghost adventure uh, episode that I was really intrigued about. And it's kind of ironic that we're talking about TV episodes considering last week, AJ was talking about TV episodes and he and I both don't watch much TV. So it's kind of ironic that that's how we've let off both of these episodes. Two guys who read more than they watch TV yet are talking about TV shows on a book podcast completely. Well, I told you I'm trying to read less and watch that's more That's right. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Soon folks, this isn't going to become fully booked. It's going to become yeah. Video fulfilled. <laughs> <laughs> We're putting ourselves out of business. Yes. And so the other uh, episode of Ghost Adventures I watched was about the Cecil Hotel. Now, I had watched the documentary of the Cecil Hotel. Are you familiar with the Cecil Hotel, AJ? I am not, no. So the Cecil Hotel is a hotel that's very haunted. A lot of bad things have happened there from murders to suicides. And there is a very famous unsolved mystery that nobody knows what happened. The girl's last name is Lamb. I'm drawing a blank on her first name. And I just watched it. You think I would remember, but no. So she was in this elevator at the Cecil Hotel, and it looked from the video cam security footage like she was being watched, and she sneaking her head outside the doors of the elevator, going back in, checking back out again, like looking completely paranoid hmm. as if somebody was with her. And you never see on the security cameras anybody there. Then she starts rapidly pressing buttons on the keypad inside of the elevator. And so this episode of Ghost Adventures, while I've seen the documentary side of things, this poor girl sadly dies, and I won't spoil it too much for anybody who wants to go and see it. The documentary's on Netflix. 
if you want to watch the Ghost Adventures episode, that's on, you could see it through H, oh, through Max. I almost said it again. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's very intriguing to me. Like, so I like that mystery type stuff. Probably makes sense why I like mystery books to kind of bring things full circle. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Interesting. So are you going to do what I do with every free trial and forget that you uh, signed up for it? I put a reminder note in my phone to cancel it before the renewal period comes up. So I do that every time whenever I sign up for a free trial of ever anything. Yeah. That's a great idea. <laughs> I should do that as well. <laughs> I'm starting to see the connections between the comic books all over the house, all these subscriptions I end up with. I subscribed yeah. to the Criterion channel last night. I have to remember to cut that one because it's like ten ninety nine a month. Yeah, they're getting more and more expensive, the subscription services. I'm like, yeah, I would not keep this Max thing for $15.99 a month. There's there's not enough that I have any desire to watch. I, it's like, it's crazy because I wanted to watch just really that one episode. And then I was like, oh, they did one on the Cecil Hotel. I said, I'd like to watch that one too. I'll probably watch a couple of more prior to the trial yeah. ending. But in general, I'm not really into any of the streaming services. Like I have Netflix for free only through T-Mobile because it's like a partnership they have. I don't watch Netflix. So I don't actively go and look for it. So if they said tomorrow, like, oh yeah, we're cutting this partnership. I, okay. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> yeah. Now will I watch one piece? I don't right. <laughs> yeah. I only, I watch stuff on YouTube. That's kind of how my TV consumption, I keep my cable subscription around purely for like football season for the most part and hockey. Gotcha. I think that's why I have so many subscription services because we don't have cable because I've got Hulu, ESPN Plus, Disney Plus, Netflix, <laughs> Max. I've got them all. And it's I mean, somebody was saying they were like, so I was like, why? Why are they renaming this Max? Like HBO is the selling point. This doesn't make any sense. Somebody was like, yeah, it'd be like if they renamed Disney Plus just Plus. <laughs> like, Why would anyone buy that? It's very strange to me. And I like HBO Plus Max. See, maybe I don't. I don't even know what it's called now. It's like when IHOP did that joke calling themselves IHOB for the International House of Burgers, trying to screw with the brand name. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Interesting. Anyway, so I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but AJ, do you want to clue the people in on a little bit what we're going to be talking about to start off? I do. We are currently reading, and this is my pick, Ham on Rye by Charles Bukowski. And we are, we're covering about the first third of this book. Frank, I suspect that the next time that we speak about Ham on Rye, we will have finished it. Like we split, we split it across six weeks, uh, but it is a quick, quick read. You're on chapter 24, I believe. I'm on 19 and I'm trying to hold back a little bit. Yeah. A lot faster of a read than The Girl Beneath the Sea. Definitely different, even though they both uh, contain short chapters. This one moves at a rapid pace. Very rapid pace. Um, I was interested in choosing this one. I didn't want to choose anything that I had already read. And I wanted to choose something to pick your brain on it because you had no, you'd, you'd had no knowledge of Charles Bukowski before this novel, correct? Zero. Excellent. And I've read a lot of Bukowski, mostly the poetry, although now that I'm now that I'm looking at his novels, did not write nearly as many novels as he did books of poetry. I've I've read most of them as well. So I'm coming I'm coming at Bukowski from the poetry side of things. And for some reason Hamon Hamon Rye is his most acclaimed. I think it's his most accessible 
novel, especially if you don't have much knowledge of Charles Bukowski. And for whatever reason, I have held off on reading it. I've read some of his crappier books before uh, before this one. This one's very much not crappy. But Bukowski is an interesting guy. <laughs> Frank, so Bukowski is one of these people that ha- he has a very broad readership, but he also gets slated into a particular readership in that the New York Times ran an article not too long ago of like, hey, ladies, like if if men have these particular authors on their bookshelves, that's a warning sign. And Charles Bukowski was one of those warning signs, like stay away from people that read Charles Bukowski. He has a reputation. Bukowski is known for just being an alcoholic crank, very misanthropic, hates everyone and everything. His novels and his and his poetry can be can be very uh, misogynistic. A lot of the times he he mainly writes about sex, women, drinking, gambling at the horse races and writing. But with this book, you're not getting any of that. Frank, you're probably like, he hasn't talked about any of that yet. <laughs> if I say what I know about right now, because I'm a little bit ahead of you, some of it does start to change. There was some of that, I guess, sexual talk earlier on. I do feel like with the way he writes, there are portions of it for me that I find amusing and make me laugh. But so far overall, I find him to be incredibly negative and I don't like that because I'm a very positive person. So it really doesn't sit well with me. And it also has an element to it where one chapter bleeds into the next. And the way I like to describe it is a pure brain dumping of thought. No chapter is like the other. You could jump from a plane to a you know, a bungee jumping in two separate chapters. And granted, he's not talking about bungee jumping. There is a portion about planes that does come up early on, but you wonder half the time, where the heck did this come from? Like, this is like out of left field. Like (laughs) the flow of it for me is kind of missing. The one consistent thing that he is maintaining, which is part of the thing I, I don't like, is how nasty the parents are. And, and, and how nasty just the people overall, all the people in the book, including the main character, Henry is nasty. Like they're all just like really cruel people. And it, I don't like it from my own personal feelings, but what's odd about it is he keeps you turning the pages. I don't know how he's doing it. It's really bizarre. Like there are times where I finally understand all these years later when you would talk to me about, you know, granted, this has nothing to do with it, but just as a quick sidebar, when you threw the exorcist book on the floor, there are times with Bukowski, I want to throw the book on the floor. Like he he grosses me out and it's, it's really like for me disturbing. Yeah. And, and my understanding based on the other books that I've read, one of the less gross <laughs> books that that he has. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We should give a little background to Bukowski in that this is a fiction. All of his novels are are fiction, but they're fictionalized versions of himself with the exception of his last book. So his, his nom de guerre is uh, Henry Chinaski. So this is his family. This is his upbringing that he's talking about. This is growing up in the Depression era. But Bukowski had an interesting journey to getting to this 
book in that he like he grew up during the depression very abusive family and then he went job to job to job to job to job to job to job he worked at the post office for a long time and then finally he just decided you know what like i'm i'm barely scraping by as it is i really just want to write so screw it like he he quits I, i believe he's in his 40s at this point and he just he lives in a hovel uh, of an apartment in San Pedro, and every day he just writes nonstop, and he cranks out these these books of poetry, and he does that for a living. But he barely, I mean, he barely scrapes by on this. He just spends the entire day drinking, and writing, and submitting. And eventually, his his publisher said, like, "Hey, like the poetry's great, but novels are really what's going to like people don't buy poetry. So, like, let's write a novel." And he said, okay. And then I think f- four weeks later, he was like, here you go. <laughs> like his first novel post office he wrote in like four weeks. And his publisher was like, really? And he's like, yeah, it's done. Here you go. So yeah, I think that's where a lot of that stream of consciousness comes from. The chapters bleeding into themselves. There's there's a lot of poetic language that pops up here. And I think that's where that stems from. I mean, he wrote dozens and dozens and dozens of books of poetry. Like that's that was his uh, bread and butter. That's what he loved. And then he cranked out the occasional novel. And this is this is what you got with him. And I'm guessing a lot of his characters being angry and nasty as they are is because, as you described, he himself was a crank. I'm guessing that's why it's like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A horrendous alcoholic. He's interesting because I always like to say, like with Bukowski, if I am depressed, as I am apt to get, I tend to reach for Bukowski. I tend to, I tend to reach for his poetry. And I think his poetry is re- really where he shines in terms of like, yeah, it's depressing. I mean, it can be very negative. It, it can contain all of those things that Bukowski is known for, gambling, drinking, mis- misogyny. But there's there's an intense vulnerability that shines through with his poetry that brings a certain amount of comfort, if that makes sense. Like, it's kind of like, oh, okay, all right. If I can, if I can read this, then I can, I can get through it. Kindred spirit, if you will. I think he does inject elements of humor into it as well to add as a kind of lessening the blow, I guess you would say, of the pure dread that he exhibits in his writing. I do find those elements existing. Yes. Well, I think it's intensely cynical. And I think, you know, this is he's writing he's writing the story of his youth, but he's an adult writing this and he's an incredibly cynical person. Um, So that shines through. He's not a person that takes the human race seriously at all. (laughs) And and you can tell because it is it is genuinely funny and it's it starts we should we should start from the beginning um, and work out some of those funnier bits but basically it starts with like his first remembrances like that that's the the first sentence of this book is the first thing i remember is being under something and i and i think Bukowski's incredible from the standpoint of like he he can cut to the core of a scene he can cut to the core of a person pretty quickly like even that first line, like the, the, that that's the first thing I remember is being under something like being subordinate. And he is subordinate in this book. He's subordinate to his parents. He's subordinate to his peers. He's abused by the people around him. And he even says, like, nobody seemed to know that I was there. I was under a table and nobody seemed to notice I was there. The legs of the people that I were, was looking at were not interesting which I found is uh, there was a sunlight upon the rug and on the legs of the people. I liked the sunlight. The legs of the people were not interesting, not like the tablecloth, which hung down, not like the table leg, not like the sunlight. So right off the bat, he's like, okay, the, the earliest thing I remember is being under a table. And I was not interested in people 
Like I was more interested in the table leg than the actual live people under the table because the people are the disappointment and you get that very quickly once you get out of the scene. And his description of people in general from the character Henry's standpoint, when he's describing these people, like he goes very descriptive, but not so descriptive. Like he seems to like features of people, which was a little strange to me. Like I wasn't sure what that was getting at or whatever, but it was a, I guess he was just being very observant. And that's, it seems like Henry does a lot of introspective evaluations of people and he kind of just blurts out what he's seeing. So I'm, I'm really like, this is just the thoughts that come to my head as I was reading. And I know you're much more familiar with the author. So I'm guessing you could probably fill in the gaps as to what I'm saying and what I'm interpreting and then probably fill in some of those gaps for me as to what's making me come to these conclusions. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's, and I think it's very tactical the way that he approaches that. So like, for example, his his mom is featured heavily throughout the book. There's not much of a sense of the mom. <laughs> like she has, in terms of characterization, she's just there. Existing. Yeah, she's just existing. Right. Whereas like you'll get, so she's in nearly every chapter, but you'll get a chapter where he befriends, he befriends the kid who's missing an arm. David, the kid David that was at his school that was following him home. Yeah, was he the kid that was without the arm? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get David's only around for like one chapter, and you get such a sense of characterization of David. He, he shows up, he befriends Bukowski. Like they're attacked by a group of kids, and Bukowski's like, "Okay, this is." I should say Chinaski, but it's Bukowski. It's the same person. He's like, "Okay, this the jig is up. This is pretty much it. Like we're way outnumbered. This kid is disabled, and the kid just." beats the ever loving <laughs> crap out of these children, like takes his arm off and just starts whipping them. And then they were playing football in the front yard in that right, scene when those kids. Right. Came. Right. And he, that's the end of it. Like David leaves after that. He just, he, he moves away. And, and in a couple pages, you're like, oh, wow. Like I have such a sense of that character. And I still, mom is like a, I think you said this when we were talking previously, she's like a ghost. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't get any sense of her existence except she was there. She was this sh- yep. shadow in the background that you knew held a purpose to the dichotomy of the family in terms of that, okay, exhibit A, this is Henry's mom. But Henry's mom has real right. no purpose in this story except her existence, which is a non-existence. And like you mentioned, I thought you put it really well, David, who we only see befriend Henry for such a short period of time before he moves, is more engulfed from a characterization standpoint and present as a friend for Henry than a parent figure that his mom is supposed to be. She's less present, more so an enabler of the father. Yes, yes, very much so. And we should we should get in. The father pops up very quickly. The second chapter of the book, they basically like drive up to an, an orange grove outside of Los Angeles and start stealing oranges from the grove. And they're run off by the man who owns the orange grove uh, with a shotgun, uh, which is actually it's a it's a very interesting scene. It presents a lot to the reader. It's three pages long, if that. And you get an immediate sense of a lot of different things. Like you get a sense of like the struggle. So you get a sense of a class struggle, but you also get a sense of 
the dad, like the dad really, really wants to be in charge here and he just, he can't hack it. So they end up going back to the house and, and like he is just as abusive as you can be to a child. You really much get the sense that like the depression is occurring, but the parents also want, they want to pretend like they're, you know, the white picket fence, American dream family. And they're very much not. And you get a sense of like, like they're almost like zombie, like where it's like, we we're, we're presenting ourselves this way because that's what we're supposed to do. Okay. That's just what people are supposed to do. There's no question of it. And the frustration comes out of the dad very, very, easily and it comes on to henry very very frequently he's highly combustible the dad he's a ticking time bomb is how i kind of think of him and in that scene once he leaves where they were picking from the tree because it wasn't his tree and he was stealing he winds up going to that one house of that lady to collect her money because he does a milk delivery and he winds up sleeping or fooling around whatever he does we we know he has sex with the with the woman behind the mother's back not knowing about it and you know it's almost goes to show how broken the marriage is between Henry's mom and Henry's dad and the father has such a lack of self-esteem and such a lack of self-worth that he's willing to do anything it seems like for any ounce of yeah. internal satisfaction for himself absolutely absolutely one of the lines that really stuck out to me is um you know, I was not allowed to play with other children. They're bad children, said my father. Their parents are poor. Yes, agreed my mother. My parents wanted to be rich, so they imagined themselves rich. Like very judgmental on the rest of the world with no introspection whatsoever. And very concerned. I think it's interesting. They're very concerned with how they present themselves to the outside, but they have no friends whatsoever. <laughs> like there are no, there's family. Um, that they travel to occasionally and they visit, but there there are no friends. Um, dad has no friends. Mom has no friends. There's nothing there. Right. And we see that scene where the mom, the dad, and Henry go to bring food to that woman who has pretty much nothing. I forget if that's a family friend or it looks more like an acquaintance of whatnot. And the father is just absolutely like cruel to this woman. The mother, you actually see for the first time in that scene, that woman trying to show some level of compassion and trying to help. And Henry has no interest in talking to this woman, doesn't like her, ignores her. I, You get elements of where he mimics the mother in this scenario. He's mirroring the mother's quietness and how the mother says nothing when they're at home in their own house. But then you see the nasty side of Henry by not showing common courtesy of saying hello or you know just talking. Yep. What she get, what she's getting from the dad. Henry is definitely a makeup of both of his parents, in in many different facets. I think. Yeah, you get the sense of like this kid doesn't have, it doesn't have a chance, right? It really explains a lot. And this is very much a book where it's like it's the portrait of the artist as a young man, right? He's he's one of these people that like if you read a lot of Bukowski or if you get a bigger sense of his biography, a lot of this makes sense. Like you can understand, okay, I can see how he became the person that he became. And what's nice about it is he never explicitly points any of that out. He never wallows in like, oh, poor me. Like my parents caused me to be like this. Like in, in a certain sense, he 
he owns it. But I did pick up on certain things where like he's talking about the um so the grandfather is an alcoholic, so dad is constantly talking about like how terrible alcoholism is and how ashamed he is of that. And you I, I kind of get the sense of like, oh, well, like then <laughs> Bukowski growing up to being an alcoholic is like the perfect like, well, screw you then. Like then I'm gonna be this. I'm gonna be exactly what you don't want me to be. Right. There's no self-evaluation from those who sur- you surround yourself with and yourself as a person, he's becoming exactly what he doesn't like rather than, than going the opposite direction. Exactly. Exactly. It's interesting too. So uh, the book Factotum, which was his, I believe, second novel, it's about him going from job to job to job to job. The parents show up for like a single chapter in that book, which is what makes Hamon Rye very interesting. Because like early on, like he goes home, he's drunk, he throws up on the carpet and dad wakes up and like grabs him by the head and pushes his face down to the carpet. And he's like, this is what we do to a dog. And Henry at that point is an adult. So like in that scene, you get a sense of like what childhood must have been. But as an adult, he gets up, punches his dad in the face and then leaves. And we never see the parents again after that. So it's interesting to to dive back into this because it's as it's about as horrible and cruel as as you can imagine while also being like, like we're very down on it it is a very it's it's not a it's not a pleasant read by any means it's a light read it's a quick read it's not a pleasant read but it does have elements of humor what were some of the things that you you found to be funny about it i found bukowski to be funnier in the beginning of the book these chapters that i've been reading now i, I can't pinpoint a certain time there are some ways with his delivery like that's a big thing for me if you're looking at from a comic stand-up comic standpoint, delivery is everything. And there are some beats where Bukowski hits and his timing is impeccable. Yeah. And it's he's able to take a really depressive and sad situation and he's yeah. able to inject humor with it out of nowhere. Like there is one scene I could think of that I read today, but I cannot say anything about it because it's beyond vulgar. And I just can't say those words, but it was just the way he was describing it when the kids are underneath pretty much like bleachers and yeah. And the and, and there's the girl and, and yeah, so I'll let you listening, keep that to your imagination, but there is not necessarily what they're doing um, that, you know, morally what they're doing is not good, but it's the delivery and the writing of how he says things where I'm not laughing out loud, but it gets a chuckle from me because of his poignant delivery, how blunt and crude it is. Like something that no regular person talking would say just like generally. And it's the way he just says it without a care in the world. So I'm looking at it right now. I'm trying to, I'm trying to see if there's even a way that we could present this. Essentially they're under the bleachers at this air show and there, there's a group of kids and they notice that they're looking up at a woman and this woman's not wearing underwear so that like they can see everything. And they're like, hey, it's a blank, said Frank. It's really a blank. I said, yeah, said one of the big guys. That's what it is. I'll always remember this, I said. All right, guys, it's time to go. What for? Asked Frank. Why can't we keep looking? Because, said one of the big guys, I'm going to do something. Now get out of here. And we walked off. What do you think he's going to do? I asked. I don't know, said Frank. Maybe he's going to throw a rock at it. And by the way, that's not Frank me saying this. There is a character, Frank, in the yeah. book, which I couldn't <laughs> believe my name was actually in a book. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very much punctuated with with like these just humorous dialogue. Like it's not a it's not like a punchline set up. It, it's just kind of like, OK, these are these are boys left to their own 
devices, which is not a great, <laughs> not a great thing. Um, but I think the dialogue is really where where some things start to shine. Of like that's that's kind of a fun. That's like that's a funny thing that a kid would say in a situation like that. I mean, yeah, because these kids have nothing, you know, they they have nothing to do or no way to entertain themselves. They come from broken homes and they're looking for any ounce of anything to amuse themselves, to distract themselves from the horrors that are their lives at the moment. Right. To the point where like during the air show, like people are dying in the air show. I know. (laughs) And people are applauding when they come out of the plane as it's burning. And I'm like, what? Um, And and they're still keeping this event going and they're not stopping it. Like there's a whole load of things that go on in this book where I'm completely like taken aback where I'm like, this is just off-putting in a lot of ways. Like, but, but then you think back to what you've told me, and I don't know if we talked about it in the beginning about Bukowski, but you have to assume you've told me he's drunk this entire time that he's writing all this. Yeah, he was never not drunk when he was writing things. I, I believe there's, a, if I remember correctly, there's a couple poems when he's in his 70s where he's like, hey, I'm not drunk right now. I don't like this. <laughs> I don't think the writing's good. <laughs> That's crazy that he actually doesn't like his writing unless he's belligerent. And I'm guessing because his mind is free-flowing potentially rather than trying to think about what he wants to write instead of just verbal diarrhea of the mouth. Yeah. I mean, he was hes the type of guy who would just like, if he couldn't write, if he didn't know what to write, he would just write about not knowing what to write. Like he would literally just write about what he was doing at that exact moment. Like I'm sitting at the typewriter. I can't think of something to write. Like that's, that's, he was just very upfront with things like that. That that scene makes me think though, there's there's a sense of surrealism that bleeds into Bukowski's novels. And, and I think it's really well done where it's like, you don't necessarily need to take it at face value. <laughs> like, like this is the one, this is from a kid's eye. At this point, like when they're watching the air show, he's in third or fourth grade. So like the memories can certainly be very hazy here, but it's more of his outlook of the world. This is how he views people. Like people would applaud, would rather applaud at the death and destruction of the air show and be bo- and himself included. Like he, he's very explicit with like, yeah, they were doing all these tricks and like that was the boring part, you know, the parachute landings into the circle to see who can get closest was a portion that came up during the air show. And he thought that was boring, too. Yeah, he thought that was boring until the one guy's parachute didn't <laughs> didn't um, eject properly, and he falls to the ground and probably dies. Like he was thrilled by that, and the crowd was thrilled by these things. But in terms of like the actual skills of the air show, it's like, yeah, this is boring. What's ironic is he finds that entertaining, like the you know the parachute not being able to be opened. But then we see another turn from him. And I don't know if you've got up to this point yet, so I hope I'm not spoiling anything, but the dog is in the backyard of those friends that didn't, those group of people that didn't like him at first, like Chuck, and they had his bulldog like trying to kill this cat. And he, and and the way Bukowski paints this picture, it's quite eloquent the way he paints it. It's a disturbing scene, but then the next door neighbor is watching and he's like, I could tell that the next door neighbor wants the cat killed too by the dog. But in that moment, Henry is completely against the idea of this happening. And obviously as a reader myself, I'm like, I don't like that this is going on. And it's weird because Henry like plays these two different roles of in one motion, he's talking about getting kicks out of somebody's parachute 
not deploying. And the next minute, he's not liking the idea of a dog killing a cat. And then later on in that chapter, he says, I like being bad. Like it gives him a rush. Like, so I, you have these split personalities, which is probably part of his mental destruction that's going on. He's got like the good angel on the shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder all stemming from how his father treats him and how his mother is almost indifferent to him. What's interesting too, I, I've not made it to the scene, but I am aware of this scene, is that like the destruction of a human, he's fine with. He's gleeful when that occurs. There's actually like, in fact, Totem, he straight up murders someone casually. <laughs> like he just like, he he goes to sit down at the racetrack and somebody's in his seat and he's like, get the hell out of the way and like shoves the guy under the bleachers and he just falls like 30 feet to the ground. And that's it. That's like the only mention like, oh, he just murdered somebody, which like clearly he didn't do this in real life, but it's just such a like he just casually does it. He's gleeful from that standpoint. But when it comes to an animal and this tracks very much with Bukowski, Bukowski, I should have added this to the list of his interest, loved animals, loved cats. Um, one of the poetry anthologies I have, uh, posthumous anthologies called On Cats, and it's all of his cat poems. He adored animals so you go from the airfield to very shortly later like being very disturbed and upset that humans are being cruel to animals like and you would peg this kid as like oh this is this is going to be the prime candidate i would imagine frank you probably went into that scene thinking like oh this is not going to end well if there's an animal involved with him but he very much like like he loves animals <laughs> he doesn't like people People don't treat him well. Like it goes right back to the beginning of the book where it's like, I'm not interested in the people's legs. I'm more interested in the table legs. But man, he loves he loves an animal. And an animal, think about it, like an, a, a cat or a dog is going to give you un, unconditional love unless they're trained otherwise like a human, like Chinaski, like, like Bukowski. Right. He even saves a fly from being eaten by a spider who's wrapping it up in the web. And- What's ironic is these friends of his, I should put friends in air quotes, who he looked so deeply for their approval. And then he gets in back when, you know, we're jumping back a little bit when he gets into that fight, when his friend David at the time beats up those guys and Chuck and his group, his gang of friends wouldn't originally let them play with him. And I guess after they see him get into that fight, then they bring him into the friend group. But these supposed friends of his that wanted the camaraderie of, yet he doesn't like anything that they do or stand for. And he really hates them. And then they get mad at him because he's ruining their fun. But then they seem to get back together again. So it's like this yin and yang thing of this very bizarre friendship. I don't even know if you can call it that. But you definitely find instances where, especially with the animals, like you mentioned, where he doesn't really need these quote unquote friends like he thinks he does. He's just looking for, I think, a way out of his house almost, because anytime he's in that house, he's getting beaten in the bathroom, it seems like. So I think that's his escapism. And he's he's trying to hang around people that he doesn't agree with. Well, and, and I, I tend to forget too, like how young he is until he starts a chapter and is like, and now fifth grade. And we're like, oh, damn. <laughs> like all that happened in fourth grade. <laughs> so like there is this, you, you got to keep that in mind as you go along. Like, like, yeah, it doesn't make sense that he'd want to be with these people, but like he has no sense of how to be a, he's never taught how to be a human. I mean, nobody is right. But like he's abused constantly so there's got to be this like 
this push and pull of like wanting to be, he very much wants to be accepted, but it's, it's also always couched in like proving people wrong. Like that's where you get that surreal quality, right? Like with airfield, like, are these people actually dying? I don't know. They could be, but you also have scenes where like, he's the football star, right? Like he, (laughs) he like runs, runs the touchdown and carries all of these kids on his back with him. Like he's hitting home runs. And then you very quickly, like after a couple chapters, when he's saying like, I just needed more practice. Like I need more practice with this. I'm not very good. Like that was all in his head. Like he has this sense of like, I could be great if I was just given a little bit of extra time, like a little bit of extra practice. It was an amusing scene, him hitting, I hit a home run every time I step up to the plate. Like it was some exaggerated scenes in that, you know, in that, in his description of himself, but he's, he was using that scene, I thought, to build up his self-confidence, to give himself a reason to think something of himself, because like you pointed to, I mean, he really has no sense of self. He has, no, he doesn't have any, you know, positive upbringing. He doesn't have his parents building confidence in him. And so he's looking to something that he actually is good at, but he downs himself whenever he gets the opportunity. I mean, I have felt the most interesting series of chapters where I felt there was some continuity flow between them. I thought this it, it, this was more like earlier on. I thought it was Bukowski's best writing in the book so far when they're playing kickball. That whole thing actually brought me back all the way to elementary school when we used to play kickball. And it was it was very much of that nature. And so I really enjoyed that, those scenes, you know, to see him try to build up that self-confidence. And you at times think he's going to come out of it, that he's going to reach a point where he's like, you know what, I am good at something. But then he immediately comes back down. And that's where you learn that what you're really reading in this book is Charles Bukowski writing a biography about himself and his views of himself, it feels like. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, again, that's where all of his, that's where all of his books kind of stem from. Like they're all, they all follow Henry Chinaski, which is Charles Bukowski. And, and being fictionalized, he can take liberties. Like, you know, he can have those surreal scenes where he just murders someone. Clearly he didn't murder someone when <laughs> be writing the book. And like he, he can take poetic license with a lot of things. And, and to me, this really comes out it comes out in a lot of scenes where you're like, God, I hope that didn't happen exactly how he said it happened. I really hope it didn't happen exactly. Like the the when he learns to mow the lawn, like that's one of the most just gut-wrenching scenes to me. It's interesting because he does like he's not given much practice with the other kids, but he gains some kind of respect with them. Um, like this line from earlier on, um, I never hit a home run. I struck out most of the time, but they always remembered that home run. He had one home run. And while they still hated me, it was a better kind of hatred. Like they weren't quite sure why they hated me. So you have that, like he gains respect through like his friend and him being able to get the best of them, even though there were more of them. And now he's finally in a state where like every Saturday he plays football and he's like, I just need more practice. Like I'm starting to get better at this. And there's a scene where like he catches the football and he, at least in his mind, like this is his chance. Like he finally is able to make a legit touchdown, not a fantasy touchdown, like an actual touchdown. And then his dad screams his name. And I hated this part, by the way, like, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but I just had to interject to say this part. I agree with you is kind of the part in the book where I'm like, I really don't like this. Like, like it it was bothersome just, just to read 
Yeah, because it's it's so exaggerated, and I really did get the sense of like I don't I don't know that this is exactly how it played out, but it didn't matter, you know. And because he's so young, like he's still in fourth grade at this point. Like it it doesn't matter if what is happening to him happens exactly as he says. Emotionally, this is how it feels to him. And his dad is like, "All right, you're done. You're done playing football." Like now it's time to learn. You're old enough. Now it's time to learn to mow the lawn. Like this is the exact moment that I'm choosing for you to learn how to mow the lawn. And it's not just mowing the lawn. It is mowing the lawn with an obsessed, like a psychotic amount of detail. Yeah. Trimming, uh, flowering, uh, the watering, the, the flower beds and all very extenuating detail of to the point of taking the scissors and cutting the hairs on the grass, like an, an, an ex- over exaggerated amount of work purely with the purpose of setting Henry up to fail intentionally. So he could beat him Set, setting up to fail and also achieving this, this amount of like, cause he's telling him to like mow, mow the lawn twice (laughs) like you mow it once one way you mow it yeah you mow it north you mow it south and then you get that like he paints a very clear picture of like oh that's the perfect checkered lawn right like to look at this lawn anyone's gonna see it and go that's perfect like they must they must really have it together but then it becomes such just a psychotic game of yeah like okay now here's the scissors now like put your face down on the ground make sure there's no hairs trimming up like it's setting it like you said setting him up to fail there's no possible way he can achieve this and he just becomes exhausted and defeated if i remember correctly like the sun is going down on him he and he doesn't even care he knows he's going to get beaten for screwing up and he's reached the point of indifference where it doesn't even hurt anymore he doesn't cry anymore he doesn't even care he's just so indifferent about what's going on and the port portion that happens in the scene and this happened earlier in the book too, I find this relationship between the dad and the mom really bizarre, but she calls him daddy all the time and he calls her mama. And, and I don't know if that's a dig at the son, like it's almost like, yeah, you're, you're just our kid, but you're, we're not your mom and dad. You know what I mean? I almost felt like it's a backhanded slight. Um, it could be, I, I read it more as the time period than anything else. Cause this is, I mean, we're, we're talking depression era here. I think that may have been how they would have referred to themselves. Um, but it definitely is very in your face, especially like if you're, <laughs> if you're kind of heightened to that. Yeah. And it, it was just, it was a thing where I don't even know how they even had any type of affinity for each other. Like it almost was like there were times the mom was trying to do whatever she could to get her son beaten. Like she would tell on him all the time the father would look for any excuse like especially with the lawn scene which was i just didn't know where because this is kind of where we left off from from my standpoint with the, the first portion of the book here and my thought after all that transpired was i don't know what i think of this book so far i can't say i don't like it i can't say i like it i don't think bukowski is somebody i feel bad for the rough upbringing in life he had the thing i don't like that he seems to project is he never even tries or attempts to find positivity in anything yes and that's the case through most of (laughs) most of his writing yeah And, and i think that's where the humor comes out now it's not happening right now in the book but yeah, there's not much of an attempt. This is an interesting book in that like it's a coming of age novel, but it's also like it's very purposely written as the like, this is my like, this is how this particular artist is formed. 
Okay. <laughs> like this is how I became who I am. And if you are familiar with his other books, you're like, Oh, okay. All right. All right. I see why this happened. That's intensely sad. I think it's interesting, like from a from a cultural standpoint, it's interesting because this seems like the worst possible time period and set of circumstances to have a child. <laughs> but the the parents haven't confronted their own unhappiness, but they go through the steps. And I, and I feel like you get this throughout the book, like they just go through the steps of what it is to be an American essentially, especially in this time period. Like, yeah, there's a raging depression and we live in abject poverty, but like, we're going to raise a family. Damn it. We don't know why and we don't want it, but we're doing it anyway. It's, a, it's almost robotic. Did the parents seem like people who don't have any sense of even direction of their own lives? You know, like they clearly seem to be taking out their frustrations during this time period and using their son who... You know, Bukowski doesn't come out right and say it, at least yet. But there's that feeling you get that the parents is like the mom is indifferent to Henry. The father beats him like they're looking at as like this child of theirs was a mistake and they have no interest in him in any way, shape or form, which is terrible. Yeah. And it's and it's a very hard thing to read and watch him go through. So you can understand where Bukowski is very indifferent to people and, you know, borderline doesn't like people which is not really borderline. He doesn't like people. It's just a very upsetting, sad set of circumstances. And, you know, it's obviously like AJ said earlier, it's not a pleasant read by any means. It's not a pleasant read. It's definitely food for thought and, and structurally interesting. As you were saying that, I was, I was thinking like the, the scene with the, like, think about like the kids torturing the animals, right? Like, why are they doing this? Like, well, there's, there's, there's boredom, clearly. Like there's a sense of like the bottom has dropped out of life because these are poor kids during the depression. But the dad is reflective of that too, right? Like Henry's the animal to the dad. Like the dad has no sense of purpose. Therefore, it's like, all right, well, I guess I'll just torture this animal like out of boredom. Like he, he is that dog to the dad. We learned that too, even in the classroom scene, all the kids going through telling what their parents do, like their fathers do and you know, Henry makes up something of what his father's his father's a dentist or whatever he made up the teacher, I think it was. But yeah. he learned that most of his parents were were poor. You know, most of the parents obviously are poor or don't have jobs. And, you know, just to show where they're able to bring it back to, you know, where Bukowski is able to almost bring back the curtain to reshape the reader to say, look, these are still kids that still truly don't understand entirely what's going on. When Henry says, maybe it's just my block right. that all the fathers have no jobs. He doesn't understand that it's affecting everybody in America during that time. And it's a little bit of a reflection piece that caught my attention um, right. at that point in the book. Um, it's very brief, but it really still shows the, in a way, the, you know, the innocence of Henry. He really, he doesn't truly understand what he did wrong, which really as a kid yeah. at that point in time, he didn't do anything wrong. But he's being molded into almost like a ticking time bomb, which is what his father is. And due to his mother not saying anything and just going along, she's just as guilty as the dad. Yeah. They're essentially creating another guy that like the father is. But this is going across the board. And the and the one semblance of saving grace is these random real friends you could see blip blips and pieces of from David 
early on to Frank, you know, so you you see these little things, these relationships don't seem to last very long, but I think that's intentional to show that because people were so poor, they couldn't afford to stay where they were for long periods of time. They were just trying to survive. Yeah. And it's like you, you as a reader start to like, okay, I know what the name of the game is. This is a weird comparison to make, but like, um, Octavia Butler's book, um, Parable of the Sower, which is dystopian science fiction set in the future. There's a sense of that there where it's like anybody in that book can die at literally any moment. So like when a character shows up and is portrayed and you start to fall in love with that character within one chapter's length, as a reader, you start to understand like, oh, okay, stop. Don't get attached to this character. Like they're going to die. Like anybody could die at any moment. And I get that sense here too. Like, especially when David showed up, I was like, stop getting attached to this character. <laughs> like he's going away. He's clearly, and the next chapter he's gone. Yes. And that's one of the things I haven't gotten attached to any character because I, nothing feels like it's going to be forever. The one constant that feels forever is unfortunately the pain that you're seeing Henry deal with himself. And, you know, that's kind of, you know, where we are in the book at this point. Like there hasn't been, you know, any saving grace yet in terms of, you know, what's going to happen with Henry. I mean, granted, we know Henry, like AJ said, is Bukowski and we know how he turned out as a, as a grown man. So, you know, it doesn't really get much, unfortunately, better, but in terms of the story, I'm curious to see where it's going to be taken. And Bukowski yeah. does keep making you read as much as I, I, I don't even know what to give it thus far. I'm an incomplete right now. It's not something like I'm glad we're doing this book club readings because this isn't something I would normally have picked up myself. So it's uh, throwing me into a different uh, mindset, which I know what your intention was all the time. You're an English teacher. I know how you think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I think I'm always interested to see how people, especially if you have no familiarity with Bukowski, because Bukowski's audience gets slated as like, that's a writer for young, angry white men, which is true to an extent. But what always amazes me about him is when that branches out, because he has a very broad readership. Like to give you a couple examples, um, are you familiar with uh, Run the Jewels, the rap group Run the Jewels? So they on their fourth album, they have a book called Walking in the in the Snow, which is about police brutality against black people. And there's a line within that, like you wouldn't expect Bukowski to show up, but there's a line that Killer Mike says where he's like, I, you know, I, I'm reading Chomsky, Bukowski, and I'm laying low for a week. And it's like, what are you finding comfort in, in Bukowski? And I can remember I had, I had a ninth grade girl years ago um, who, God, she wrote like one of the just most gut-wrenching and well-written personal narratives that I had ever written. And it, and it was about like, she she came out to her mom. She she came out as gay and her mom's response was just, no, you're not. Like no, That's literally not possible and we're not talking about it ever again. And it was such an introspective piece. And she, like we connected over Bukowski, she was reading Women, um, which is his novel. It's his third novel. And it's about, it's it just like, you talk about meandering. It just, it's just like him going through and failing different various relationships with women. It's one I've never been able to finish. Like it's incredibly misogynistic, but there was a comfort in the right. Like there was a certain amount of like kinship almost of like, okay, I'm going through cruelty here and you're going through cruelty and we're going through it together. So I'm always amazed at like the the broad readership that he does have that people don't necessarily seem to think that he has. Like I said, I've always like if once the depression starts, like grab the beer, reach for the Bukowski like that, that, that can do it for me sometimes. Yeah. I don't know if I'll be reading anything else by him. It's too sad for me. And it's, it's not 
the mindset. I like it. It doesn't put me in that mindset because I'm very pretty strong-willed. I can pretty much separate myself from what's going on and read it for what it's worth and understand where he's coming from. But in the same token, it just doesn't sit right with me, the over-negativity. I understand his life and what he comes from. You know, even with that one clip you shared with me, yes, I laughed because again, he's got that timing with his humor that's really, it's impressive, but he caught the interviewer off guard. And I forget exactly how that, oh, he was talking about the fleetingness of of love or something like that and how, you know, it's not, and and she was kind of like, what, really? And he dead. Yeah. It's like, uh, I think he called it like smoke. Like it's yeah. just. And she was, you know, really? And he was like, yeah, like just deadpanned, no emotion, no feeling, but he never had any feelings of, of that because he never got it. So it's, I can't say I, I, the reason I wouldn't read Bukowski is I don't think he's a good writer. He's a very descriptive, not Tolkien descriptive, but very descriptive. He does write very well, but he's, in my opinion, a disturbing writer because he is disturbed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and I will say you are getting a different sense of him here. Not that he's not that he's incredibly negative throughout all of his books, but like Post Office, which is his first novel. There are some like things that happen in that book. But like on the on the whole, it's a pretty funny book. (laughs) Like it's it's pretty funny, the things that happen to him. And it's just about him working at the post office. That's it. It's a it's one hundred and twenty some pages of him just working at the post office. <laughs> yeah. And, and for me, you know, it's, this is a, my first venture into something that is not in my genre realm. My genre realm tends yeah. to stick with mysteries and thrillers as we've iterated before on the podcast. And then when we go into the nonfiction world, I'm very big into, you know, travel destination related things, a lot of stuff with Las Vegas related horror and some horror stuff with R.L. Stein. So mm-hmm. this is a different thing. I'm glad I'm reading it. It's a, it's a new avenue for me to explore. I'm trying to get into new genres to get out of that comfort zone, but it's, it's definitely a heavy book, I guess you could say, because you're actually learning about somebody's life. And sometimes the, you know, sometimes those things to read aren't the most pleasant. But well, folks, that's going to wrap up our first portion here, I guess, quarter of the way through of Charles Bukowski's Ham on Rye. I really appreciate AJ's insight on giving me a background on Bukowski, uh, especially before we started this to book to, to give me some insight onto him and what to prepare myself for. So I wasn't entirely shocked about a lot of this stuff, but I'm glad I was given some insight on on him. And I appreciated AJ, um, especially I know in the beginning with the backstory you provided on him. I'm sure some of the people listening who haven't listened, who haven't, sorry, read Bukowski before, I'm sure this will help as, a, as an entry point for people. Yeah, absolutely. And to quote Modest Mouse, I'm sorry, Frank, you might have to bleep this when you edit. Um, but Modest Mouse has a, a song called uh, Bukowski. And the first line is, um, woke up this morning. It seemed to be that every day turns out to be a little bit more like Bukowski. And yes, I know it's a pretty good read, but God, who'd want to be such an asshole? <laughs> that sums it up. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate. <laughs> it really does. And, and folks, if you'd like to follow the podcast, you could uh, join our Discord. That'll be in the show notes of this episode. You can also sign up to our newsletter 
at makeshiftpress.org slash podcast, where we write micro reviews of stuff that we're not reading. That we're, that <laughs> reviews reading of books reading. we're not reading would be great. A great angle though. <laughs> right. We encourage people to read this book. We know nothing about it, but you know. Yeah. It's, you seem like you would like it though. <laughs> yeah. So if you'd like to join that, it's non-book club related reading please feel free and we'd love to have you join us. And uh, we look forward to uh, doing our next iteration episode series with the, the book club book, which I'm sure will probably take place in either two to three weeks from now. We'll do that next one. But until that time, I've been Frank. I've been me. And this book's over. <laughs>